The U.S. Postal Service, like so many agencies, has to deal with sexual harassment complaints. According to the Postal Inspector General, while USPS handles them fairly well, it lacks data on how extensive the problem might be. We get details now from the director of the Inspection Services Directorate, Elizabeth Kowaleski. Ms. Kowaleski, good to have you on. Thanks. Glad to be here. And tell us what you were specifically looking at in this study. Was it how they handle their complaints of sexual harassment or whether they know how many they actually should be dealing with? Sure. So the objective of this audit was to evaluate the Postal Service's overall response to sexual harassment complaints involving Postal Service employees. So in other words, we wanted to provide a really comprehensive overview of the various ways in which the Postal Service responds to employees' sexual harassment complaints and determine whether there were any opportunities for improvement. Got it. And let's just define the terms here because sexual harassment covers a wide range of activities and behaviors, but it kind of stops short of sexual assault. Is that correct? Correct. So we were not looking at those situations that would rise to the level of criminal sexual assault. Those would be handled by a law enforcement entity. Got it. So let's talk about with respect to how the USPS handles the complaints it does know about. How do they tend to get reported up and what is the response mechanism? Sure. So there are three main ways in which employees can report sexual harassment complaints. They can report them to management through a specific process, uh, and management has its own investigation process called the Initial Management Inquiry Process. Um, They can report to a union representative. If appropriate, that could go through the grievance and arbitration process. And then they can also make a complaint to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. That would be through their EEO complaint process. And those complaints are really the ones that rise to the legal definition of sexual harassment. But the Postal Service's overall anti-harassment efforts particularly when it comes to how management responds, those are designed to address all harassment, regardless of whether it rises to the level of the formal legal definition. Sure. So harassment, I guess, is bad regardless of the form it takes, and they look at those in the same light pretty much, regardless of the type of harassment, fair to say? The purpose of the Postal Service's anti-harassment program is to deter and combat all harassment, regardless of whether it rises to the level of unlawful harassment. The EEO process has some very clear legal definitions for the cases that should be addressed via that process. Got it. And it looks like, again, from the report, some of the background information is that they have pretty good systems for tracking what they do hear about. They have one oddly named system called, well, there's WETS and GATS. I don't think I would name those systems that, but they seem to be effective at keeping track of what's going on. So we did find that there were some issues related to the reliability of the data in those systems. So the WET system you refer to is the Workplace Environment Tracking System. And that's the data system where when a complaint is made to management and an initial management inquiry process takes place, that's where those complaints would be housed. In that particular system, We did find that there were some opportunities to improve the accuracy of the data in the system. For example, 5% of the complaints that we reviewed that were recorded under categories such as hostile work environment actually met the criteria for a sexual harassment complaint. So they have some work to do then on tracking as well as dealing 
Correct. So I think in terms of the data systems, we did identify three main reliability issues. So that accuracy issue in the wet system that I just discussed, and then in the grievance and arbitration tracking system or GATS, there were some issues with data completeness. So it was not really possible for us to determine how many sexual harassment complaints were actually even dealt with through that process because some of the data elements were incomplete. More broadly, though, I think when it comes to the data system, so there is a third system that the EEO uses to track complaints that go through that process. And I think the main issue we found with regard to reliability is that complaints can be addressed through all of these processes. And so what that means is that an individual's complaint could be found in all three systems. However, there's no common unique identifier for the complaints. And that means that it becomes more difficult to get an accurate tally of how much sexual harassment is actually happening and is actually reported because there can be duplicates across those systems. We actually found that the Postal Service may not have a complete picture of the extent to which sexual harassment is or is not reported because they don't conduct a survey of employees about sexual harassment behaviors. We're speaking with Elizabeth Kovaleski. She is director of the Inspection Service Directorate in the Postal Service's Office of Inspector General. And they do do surveys because some of them are redacted in your report. But you have a long list of recommendations, one, two, three, four, five, six, and it goes on and on. Six, I guess. That's a long list for most mm-hmm. of these reports. Maybe summarize them because they are directed to the labor people, also to the human resources people, mostly to the labor relations people. So our first recommendation is that the Postal Service periodically survey employees about their experiences with sexual harassment in the workplace. This is so the Postal Service management can better understand the extent to which these behaviors are occurring and to better understand whether anti-harassment programs are working. We also have two recommendations geared toward addressing the data reliability concerns I discussed earlier. The purpose of these recommendations is to improve the Postal Service's ability to analyze existing data on reported incidents. Another recommendation that we made is to address an issue that we identified in the Postal Service's EEO process that could result in some complaints going unaddressed. And finally, we made two recommendations to help ensure that all of the supervisors and managers involved in responding to sexual harassment complaints have completed required training. And by the way, did you find or did you look at whether the postal unions can have a role in this working with the Labor Relations Department of Management at the Postal Service? So the system and the process that I mentioned before, the grievance and arbitration process and the grievance and arbitration tracking system, sexual harassment issues can be addressed through that process and that data would be captured in that system. And did the Postal Service generally agree with your recommendations? So as you mentioned, we had six recommendations. The Postal Service did agree with three of those recommendations. However, they did not agree with the remaining three. So they did not agree with the recommendation that we made related to conducting a survey or to create a verifiable process to look at the data across the three existing systems. So then there's a little bit of a standoff here at this point. I'm not sure that I would characterize it as a standoff. We do have a process for resolving these types of disagreements, our audit resolution process. So we'll be getting that started shortly with Postal Service Management. 
Elizabeth Kovaleski is director of the Inspection Service Directorate in the Postal Service's Office of Inspector General. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive podcast edition wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable, the things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and 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 physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in d- direct care, and and I will say, and on a, obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, p- profound disabilities are are really um, you know we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought well you know I'll take a look at it and see, see you know throw uh, send in my information, and lo and behold I I, I get hired, and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has, a, has a good story, like, it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, so often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of wash, wash your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from from their last competition, and they're so committed, and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and 
finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a- the athletes of Special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more, uh, we get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and uh, I mean, we work hard and you know we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at special olympics no one's excluded you know no, right. no one's excluded yeah. everyone is equal at special olympics it, and you know in a country that's quite divided on so many lines politically and uh, socially uh, economically race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot but you go to special olympics and everyone's involved everyone's welcome everyone's equal and I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics Ways to get involved, uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you, when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, 
talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.